Hi everyone, how you doing? Good to see you. Hello, hello. Um, can you hear me? Because I, okay, well I mean I know you guys can hear me. I mean, can you, okay, good. Here, uh, this is the third, yeah, the third. It's called the Rational Exuberance, the Performing Arts Market Explained. Um, we're gonna cover 40, 50 years in like an hour or less. <laughs> okay, so I, I, the first thing is like, um, you know, artists tend to think that they're not in a market performing artists, but you, they are, uh, we are. Um, just for uh, the record, um, the arts are big business. Uh, the nonprofit arts and culture industry generates $135.2 billion in total economic activity in the United States. Um, um, that's a big bag of money. Uh, and there's 32 million self-identified artists. Um, and that's, I'm not gonna go into that right now, but that's because if you have an expanded uh, definition of what an artist is there's one there's 30 non-professional artists for every one professional artist um, in America and most of the artists that you might think of in New York like being a professional artist means that you get paid that's the only job you have so a lot of the people that you know and respect as sort of mentors might not fall under that definition um, now the annual APAP conference is the um, trade show for that $135 billion industry. Um, I mean, it does more than that. It, it, it's a professional convening and all these sorts of things, but, but it's also very much a, a, a market. Um, APAP stands for the Association of Performing Arts Presenters, and it is the National Service Ad Advocacy and Professional Organization for present Presenters of the Performing Arts. Um, it was uh, actually founded in the 50s, and then it was formalized in 1969 as the Association of College and University Concert Managers. And then in 1988, it was formally incorporated as the Association Association of Performing Arts presenters, and that um, that'll come back. That'll be important later, much later. <laughs> uh, so APAP now includes uh, presenting organizations, regional, state, and local arts agencies, service organizations, producing companies, artist management companies, booking agencies, individual artists, and other performing arts professionals. And that's right from their website. Um, so basically, APAP has an annual convention, and it's where purveyors of performing arts content, artists, managers, and agents, come to sell that content to buyers. That include both for-profit and not-for-profit presenters. Um, so in a sense, and this is New York, APAP conference is not uh, significantly different than any trade show at the Javits Center, which is known as the marketplace for the world. Um, nor, nor is it necessarily different than the upfronts in the television industry or probably more accurately, CMJ, the Northside Festival, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week, or the Armory Show. Um, like those cultural marketplaces, there are a few highly curated, highly promoted big tent showcase events um, with well-established, well-known name brands accompanied by an ever-increasing proliferation of smaller shows on the margins targeting niche audiences. So um, for context, um, performing arts markets are a well-established global phenomenon. For Australia, um, Australia has something called APAM, the Australian Performing Arts Market. Uh, Seoul, Korea has uh, PAMS, which I guess is the Performing Arts Market Seoul. Um, uh, and um, if, you, if you are so inclined, you can spend the better part of the year traveling around the world shopping for shows. Um, um, and New York is a global city. Um, so the headquarters 
is at the uh, of the APAP is at the Hilton in Midtown, um, and people buy booths. If you've never been, it's a trip. Um, they, they, there's booths, there's advertising space everywhere, um, and they're marketing their artists and their services, and and um, and vendors will often uh, rent hotel rooms or event spaces in the hotel or around town to present showcases of their artists who perform short excerpts of their work uh, as showcases. Um, so, for instance, New York City Center, Danny Studios, Gibney Studios, The Joyce, uh, all of these places are, are essentially, you know, showcasing artists during that time. Um, now, remember, during this, um, it's a mix of for-profit and not-for-profit presenters. And remember, we've, in previous uh, talks, we've talked about the fact that 55% of all philanthropic arts funding goes to the 2% of arts organizations with budgets over $5 million. So the number of non-profit arts presenters with significant buying power is limited. Um, and this sort of tends to skew the market and we'll come back to that. Um, but as much as people are looking for uh, shows that are gonna sell tickets, you know, presenters also, it's culture. So they wanna look cool, you know, and cutting edge. There's this like social capital and cultural capital as well as financial capital. Um, Last week we talked about uh, New York City as global city and what happened here between 2004 and today. And um, to understand that and the impacts of the touring um, and the performing arts market, we need to go back a little bit before. Um, because we're really mostly concerned with the uh, quote unquote downtown and we, whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, so in 1985, um, at, out of DTW, David White, um, uh, started the National Performance Network. Um, he gathered together 14 artist-centered presenting organizations across the country and aware of the um, artistic isolation, the economic constraints, um, and, the, and the constricted flow of ideas and creativity around the country amongst um, communities, independent artists, and locally engaged arts organizations, um, they started the National Performance Network. Um, and it was a centralized source of national funds for the presentation of artists' performances and residencies. Um, uh, and then uh, I'll, I'll, over the years it has grown, it has I think 50 members now from 14 and we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, in 1987, PS122 uh, under uh, the leadership of Mark Russell started doing field trips. And field trips uh, went from 87 to roughly 2000, I, uh, I, I'm still uh, playing email tag with Mark, <laughs> but um, but you know they would go from PS to places like Lace in Los Angeles, the Goodman Studio Theater in Chicago. They would go to Pittsburgh, uh, the Warhol at Pittsburgh, the Walker Art Center, Pica, Sushi in San Diego, uh, UCLA, all kinds of places. Um, and the artists, uh, some of the artists were Ann Carlson, Dance Noise, Ishmael Houston Jones, Blue Man Group, Ron K. Brown, Danny Hawk, Reno, Melissa Fenley. Uh, Susan Rethorst, uh, Tom Murren, Carmelita Tropicana. And so, um, so in this like 85 to, you know, 96 period, you have this very, um, you know, growing grassroots informal network. Um, and, um, and then in um, 96, so, oh, and so we'll come back to this, but uh, the culture wars happened in 1990, 91. Um, and so the NEA cut back uh, a lot of its grant programs, particularly around touring. So um, as a response to that, um, um, or as one of the outcomes of that, um, I'm, I'm like waiting to get corrected. Uh, someone should do a PhD thesis on this and really fact check it.
uh, was the National Dance Project. Um, and that started, that launched in March 1996 with a two-year leadership grant from the NEA and the Andrew Mellon Foundation. Uh, and uh, uh, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation provided funds for touring for the first two years. Philip Morris provided support from 97 to 2002. And the Duke Foundation has, surprised, uh, has granted generous support for production and touring since 1999. Um, and then actually in 2009 um, uh, was the National Theater Project, which is similar to the National Dance Project, and, uh, but focused on theater. And, um, and this comes back a little more because theater is in a, is in a different transition right now uh, in terms of production. Prior to 2004, um, the downtown world really existed kind of only tangentially to APAP. Um, the number of APAP attendees who were interested in and had the uh, resources to present downtown work was much smaller than the commercial market or the more mainstream market. Um, and most APAP members or many APAP members, even those who really enjoy downtown work, um, weren't necessarily convinced that they could present this to their audiences in their communities. And that was part of, um, anecdotally what I understand, that was part of the impetus behind field trips and, and NPN was to get more adventurous work into communities that wouldn't normally do that. But, um, but normally what would happen, um, since the number of buyers for downtown product was and remains small, most of the downtown institutions didn't do festivals prior to 2004. They would just put on the artists that they knew they wanted to, to get out into the world and they would invite the people that they knew from around that were going to be in town and it was a really informal grassroots relationship based thing. So, uh, you know, if so. Um, and um, the downtown presenters, you know, from attending conferences and international festivals had social networks that allowed them to really be very specific around matching artists to potential presenters from around the country and elsewhere. Then, 2003, um, in January 2003, just after APAP that year, Mark Russell curated the Fresh Terrain Festival at um, the UT in Austin. And um, I happened to be fortunate enough to be working at PS and get to go. <laughs> it was awesome. Uh, some of you may know Tommy Kriegsman. He produced it. Um, and it was um, Universes, Rude Mex, Richard Maxwell, Ann Carlson, Big Art Group, Deanna Scheinblum, uh, and Dada Camera slash Daniel McIver. Um, it went really, really well from all uh, reports. I mean, I know I had a great time. And, um, uh, and, I, and you know, once again, like, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure this was like kind of a beta test for Under the Radar, but that has yet to be confirmed uh, by, by my sources. Uh, but nonetheless, the following year in, in January 2004 was the first um, Under the Radar Festival. So I want to go back to this slide from earlier. Um, we talked about a decade of change in the arts. And two 2004 is a really pivotal year um, of change. Uh, you know, we talked about how, like, uh, so this is a sort of transformation of the city into a global city, and I'll come back to that later. But we had this horrible, you know, depression or economic crash in here. We had the global economic recovery in 2004, and the, um, uh, but the dollars are still a little weaker than the rest of the international currencies. Um, and uh, you have David White has now left Dance Theater Workshop 
Mark Russell has left PS122. Elise Bernhardt has left the kitchen, and George C. Wolfe has left the public. David White uh, is replaced by Kathy Edwards and Craig Peterson, and then Craig leaves, and then Kathy's there, and then they both are gone, and then Carla comes in. So DTW is kind of in a little bit of a mess for a couple years. Uh, Mark Russell leaves and Vallejo Gantner comes in. We'll come back to that shortly. Elise Bernhardt leaves and is replaced by Deb Singer from The Whitney. And Elise started dancing in the streets, She's, uh, which was uh, one of the first big site-specific dance companies in the city in the 80s. Um, and uh, George C. Wolfe left the public to be released by Oscar Eustace. Um, so I just want to talk briefly about, um, so when Mark leaves, PS122 and starts to do Under the Radar and then uh, Oscar takes over at the public, Mark comes in and brings Under the Radar to the public. So this is really interesting because A, uh, Mark is playing, uh, 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 Under the Radar is a much bigger platform and uh, the public is a much bigger institution than PS122 and Oscar, you know, um, they're sort of like, once again, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but you know, my recollection of the perception was that you know George C. Wolfe had kind of turned the public into like a Broadway hit, trying to make it machine, and there was a sort of feeling that the public needed to be more public, and so you had things subsequently like the 365 plays of Susan Laurie Parks, these things to try and open up the public and have it resonate with the sort of downtown culture. Um, so it allowed so so Mark bringing under the radar in 2004 allows um, him to introduce a European style festival to New York and to North America, which is just sort of starting to catch on. Um, you have the TBA festival in, in Portland that had just started the year before. Fusebox festival in Austin starts that year. Philly Live Arts uh, has been growing and is starting to uh, really grab a foothold. Um, and it allows Oscar to reposition the public. Um, and then, so, uh, and, and then of course, Mark left. Um, and it was replaced by Vallejo. And Vallejo Gantner came to PS122 already deeply enmeshed in the international festival circuit. He's originally from Melbourne, uh, was working at the Melbourne Festival, then ran the Dublin uh, Fringe Festival uh, for a number of years and then came here. Um, and his tenure at PS122 began in 2005 with two international projects, Act French and Norway in New York. Um, I was also there at the time, uh, so my memories are a bit fuzzy. Um, and I'm gonna, I want to back up and just say something that I said last time, which is like, I'm really trying to present this without any, I'm just trying to present just the facts um, as much as possible. Um, um, but what's interesting is that I, 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 there was a lot of spending that year. Like the French spent a lot on ACT French. You know, Norway spent a lot on Norway and New York. There was a lot of interest, at, at least from the outside, in international entities who had money spending it to make a cultural imprint in the city. Um, so. Um, if um, from 2005 to 2007 we see a really strong uh, strain of internationalism transform our landscape, possibly due to the economic boom, um, uh, under the radar those first couple of years was really ambitiously international. Um, uh, I didn't go dig out the programs, but there was a really strong international bent. Um, Act French, which was citywide. Um, Norway and New York, and then at PS the following year, um, Shoshana Polanco brought the Buenos Aires and Translation Festival, and then in 2007, FIAF launched Crossing the Line, which brought Lily Chopra, Simon Dove, and Gideon Lester. Uh, Gideon came down from Boston, and uh, Simon wasn't there at the time. He later came up from Arizona, previously Spring Dance. 
Um, so and this is just going back to, uh, I, I'll, have this, I'll bring back the slide later of what a global city is, but uh, basically uh, a global city is um, uh, a cultural, is a, is, a, is a hub for capital, all types of capital, social capital, financial capital, and cultural capital. And they are hubs on a global network meant to aggregate and distribute capital around the, the globe. Um, and they're designed to attract uh, ultra high net worth individuals and cater to their sort of uh, milieu. What happens then is in 2006, uh, PS122, uh, Gantner, with an extensive social network of international presenters and the ability to travel widely in search of new work, continues PS122's increased national, international focus when he introduces the COIL Festival in 2006. And I think this is really the tipping point uh, of the January festival season because um, first we have no festivals, then we have just, and we have just individual artistic directors, then we have um, Under the Radar, and, and that's also presenting work to the general public while targeting a small group of potential buyers. And then, and then Mark's successor at PS122 launches a competing festival targeting largely to the same audience of small, uh, same small audience of buyers. And um, I'll leave it to someone else to talk about the Freudian implications of that, but, um, <laughs> uh, but let's just say like après moi le déluge, and suddenly everyone has to have a festival and, uh, uh, and, and things start going haywire. Um, but before we get to that total sort of extent of that chaos, um, let's talk about visual art. Um, in if, if 2004 to 2007 marks a market shift or marks a shift towards the international or, or a, a strong strain of international, we also see the not so subtle reemergence or entry of the visual art into performance. Uh, Deb Singer, who succeeded Elise Bernhardt at the kitchen, was from the Whitney and um, I, you know, I, you know, I haven't talked to her about it, but one, one can assume or one can infer that that relationship continued with her work at the kitchen as Sarah Mitchelson, Richard Maxwell, and other sort of like uh, kitchen identified artists make their way into Whitney Biennial um, and uh, go on to achieve great recognition in the visual arts sector. Um, and then in 2005, Klaus Biesenbach led the curatorial team of Greater New York 2005, which is, was his first major exhibition as the first jointly appointed curator of MoMA NPS1. Um, I don't really remember if there was um, performance in Greater New York, um, but it seems to be the thing that put Biesenbach on the map, and I'm pretty sure it's somehow that's what brought him into touch with Marina Abramovich somehow, uh, because she had, in November 2005, a show at the Guggenheim called Seven Easy Pieces. Also in November 2005 was uh, Performa, the very first Performa, Rosalie Goldberg's Performa. And um, so that's that. And then, I, and then um, you know, someone else should trace this, but um, Harold Scramstad is a major thinker in the museum world, and he wrote an essay in 1999, uh, issue of uh, Daedalus magazine called An Agenda for American Museums in the 21st Century. And I've quoted it at length in other places, and he's basically saying the day of collection building is over, uh, the museum is meant to be a place for experience and, and, and all these other things. And so, so he has sort of in 1999 really laid out you know, uh, laid down the gauntlet for museums to really rethink what they do um, and really rethink their relationship to what they are. So, um, so all of this, I think, can in some way be traced to whether it's, whether it's Gramstad himself or whether he sort of captured the zeitgeist of a moment or the internet or whatever, but something was happening. Um, Rose Lee is really interesting because um, with performers, she makes a really decided break. Uh, to, 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 to locate visual art, to, to take performance art and go, well, this is actually visual art performance. 
Um, you know, it's the first biennial of visual art performance. When you read the thing, it says performance by visual artists. Um, and prior to this, and actually in the first one, I think she still would reference people like Ron Athey or, uh, you know, the, the NEA4 were all considered performance art, right? Like in the 80s, these body-based, theater-based story monologue people were thought to be performance art. Um, and, you know, what happens in 2005 is she says, yeah, I'm not talking about that anymore. I'm talking about this. And she sort of lays down, like, you know, Capro. And she goes all the way back to, like, the early 20th century, the futurists and Dada. And then, you know, so she's, she's firmly situating it in the visual arts camp. Um, and back in 2005, the market was really new. It was really developing. Most of the conversation uh, was about re-performance uh, and what are the complications of re-performance um, because when Seven Easy Pieces, that was re-performance, uh, I, uh, I believe. Um, and um, so then as the sort of discussion evolves from performance art to performance and the perceived potential market for performance in the visual arts sector grows, the visual art machine begins to sort of like, you know, gear up you know, and sort of colonize the performing arts. Um, they, they sort of really latch on really strongly to dance, um, less so theater, um, and they really, really encourage the creation of performance by self-identified visual artists. So what happens is that like contemporary performance originating in Europe, the visual art market is a sophisticated global market, one with significant economic and logistical infrastructure, including well-established and vibrant infrastructure for discourse that doesn't exist really in American dance theater or contemporary performance. So the increased presence of international work in NYC, the entry of the visual art world into contemporary performance, in my, in my opinion, it introduced an art market sensibility to a performance economy that could not support it. Um, and any of you who've spent any time working in downtown knows that the economy of making work at dance space or movement research or the, you know, PS122 is very different than, uh, other economies. Um, so, oh wait. So, okay, so I'm going back to the global city. These are the four points that, uh, I missed a bullet point. Oh, no, 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 it's one bullet point. Okay. Uh, these are the sort of four characteristics of the global city. Um, an advanced pr producer services production node, an economic giant, an international gateway, and a political and cultural hub. So um, what we talked about earlier is the evolution of New York. Uh, starting in 2004 to 2014, we see uh, the economic boom in 2004 introducing um, an influx of European and other expatriate executive types to the city. We see real estate development, real estate acquisition. We see uh, a, a social media transforming the landscape in 2005. And all of this kind of like converges to create this like exciting volatile bubble that kind of like heats up and heats up and heats up until 2008 when the economy crashes when we settle into the new normal. The problem is that um, the bubble crashed but not everyone's quite aware that it did. Um, so I, I have coined it Jan Pam NYC. January Performing Arts Market NYC. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about, um, right, so, so with each individual festival growing every year, the number of festivals themselves metastasizing at a similar pace, you have more than doubled, probably trebled the supply of product while targeting largely the same small amount of potential buyers. And the thing is, is that everyone became convinced that the number of potential buyers for this kind of performing arts product was vast, that the amount of capital was significant, and that producing a festival was the best way to match product with buyer. But it's not true. Um, 
so uh, the pool of potential buyers remains essentially the same today as it did 10 years ago. And while the amount of product has increased exponentially, the amount of available capital in the not-for-profit system has decreased significantly. Um, and I, I'm just going to side note here. Um, yeah, yeah, I know, capitalist, market, blah, 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 blah. But, um, and like, there's no, there's never too much art, right? There's never too much art, fine. Um, it just, it, it, I'm not saying that it doesn't, that, there sh that people should stop making art or whatever. I'm just saying that like, there's too much art being made in this particular category of like downtown contemporary whatever, um, uh, then there are buyers for it. So, so by definition, this whole conversation really only applies to those artists who seek to work within that system. Um, great work will continue to be made. Artists should always make work. Um, but it's, it's about being aware of, 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 of the market in which it exists. So let's okay. talk about the domestic demand side. Um, you have basically like a few pools of buyers. You have the National Performance Network, and these are all their partners. Um, these are all their partners. And then you also have the Contemporary Art Centers Network, and that was a network that was that was created at the time as the National Dance Project to help um, tour that work, because um, all of this was sort of trying to fill the gap that the NEA left when they stopped supporting touring. So you can see from 14, it's grown a lot, right? The NPN, um, but within the NPN. There are, there are people who are in the Contemporary Art Centers Network who are also in NPN, and I put them in red. So Contemporary Art Center, Diverse Works, uh, that's Contemporary Art Center in New Orleans, Diverse Works in Houston, uh, MCA Chicago, PICA, Red Cat, Walker, Wexner, and they're kind of like the bigger, heavy hitter, more uh, 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 funded, uh, entities, less community focused. Um, and then there's also a select group of what are called MUPs, uh, major university presenters. And um, this is a, there's a consulting company called Wolf Brown that did a study of impact with MUPs. And uh, stop taking attendance and start measuring the true impact of your programs. So they did that. And you can find it on the internet. Um, so this is like, I can't, it was like ASU, uh, University of, I, I, I can't read it, um, Annenberg, uh, a few, you know, but there's, there, there's about a dozen. So, so let's say, you know, let's say, and, and these are people that kind of aren't, that they might be in NPN, they're not in CAC, they're not MUPS. Uh, this is New Haven Arts and Ideas, which is Kathy Edwards, who used to be at DCW, uh, and then was later at PICA at TBA, uh, and, that, and that's an interesting thing, right? So TBA Festival, when Chrissy Edmonds left TBA Festival, Mark took over at TBA Festival, and then when Mark left, Kathy left, and then Angela Maddox moved from uh, YBCA up to TBA. So you've got this little, it's also like a job pool. Um, um, Fusebox, Live Arts, right? So we've got um, 17, let's say we got 30, right? 30, 30 buyers. <laughs> no, that's okay. So, so, so basically domestic demand, we've got about 30 buyers in, in North America that also may or may not have the funds to present your work. Um, let's talk about foreign demand. Um, so uh, I just pulled together just some really quick, you know, I'm just sticking with Europe. I'm not talking about Japan or, 
Asia or Latin America or really anywhere. I'm just sticking with Europe for now, uh, mostly Western Europe. Um, there's a European Festivals Association. Uh, there's uh, this is called the um, House on Fire Network, which is ten organizations. Um, and this festival's association is like very diverse. It's everything. So, um, you know, so European buyers in that market include dependable countries like the UK, France, Germany, Norway, the Netherlands, and Belgium, and a wide range of other countries with less reliable, reliable budgets and sporadic interest in American work. Um, also, Australia's major festivals will bring American work. Um, and there are one or two festivals in Latin America that have the resources to bring Americans. Um, um, and, and this is all changing because of the economy and all, you know, because of the crash. And I'll, I'll come back to this as well, but like Amsterdam has pretty much cut most of its cultural funding, or Holland rather than Netherlands. Um, so let's be generous, right, and say we've got 30 foreign buyers and 30 domestic buyers for a total of 60 potential buyers for any given show in January, right? Um, and so then let's factor in the fact that American presenters probably only have maybe 10 slots a year um, at, their, at their institutions, um, some of which will go to non-US artists, right? And then, um, and the Europeans really only have about three to four slots to fill with American artists because they have their own communities to serve. So let's say, let's just sort of like, you know, fudge it a little and say that at best, 10 artists will get any significant touring opportunities every January, maybe maybe 10, right? Um, and remember, so we have, I don't know how many, like under the radar, Coil, um, the new one over there, the, uh, which one? American Realness, uh, special effects, uh, incubators under, so that's not gonna happen. And then you have, and then you have all the dance stuff at the Joyce, you have Nyla, you have the kitchen, you have everything at City Center, you have, so I don't know, right? It's a lot. Um, so let's talk about purchasing power. Purchasing power US. Okay, so let's say we've got these like 17 people that have like a, 17 organizations that have some reasonable amount of um, purchasing power. If we identify the domestic market by looking broadly at the membership of NPN, CAC, and the, and the MUPS, um, with a few outliers here and there, you, you, you realize, and you can go, it's really fun if you're so inclined to like look at the advisory boards and sort of map all that out, um, but you'll see that a lot of the same people, um, you know, that are that are um, presenting artists are also the people who are responsible for allocating capital to artists while seeking capital to present those artists. So, um, for reasons that are too complicated to go into here, I've gone into them elsewhere, and you can read the Brooklyn Commune report goes into those pretty more. There's very little direct to artist funding in, in the states and so presenting institutions have limited access at the same time to general operating funds. So on a practical level what this means is that US presenters end up directing a lot of resources into organizational administration and, and, and don't necessarily have a lot of resources to commission new work outright which means it takes a consortium of partners to commission and tour new work. So this small sort of group of presenters who have access to significant resources because we know it's expensive to make shows we know that um, and it takes time and, and it's not like building a car like you don't know how it's going to turn out and so so you have this sort of 17 maybe like at 20 whatever with significant resources um, and they have to collaborate um, and they both have the access to the resources in terms of being able to present and their institutional resources and they're also in the conversation and they're asking for capital to do that and then they're also helping 
helping make the decisions about who gets the capital to make the work. Um, so they're significantly represented on the arts funding panels of the sort of major foundations. Um, they tend to be in the conversations about fellowships and residencies and, and all kinds of stuff. So the point being is that by the time we get to January, um, and all of the festivals and APAP and all the festivals that are going on around APAP, all the commissioning and disordering decisions have been made. Like, it's, it's done, um, by and large. People are coming to check on stuff they've already commissioned. They're going to see, oh, how's, that, how's Young Jean's piece? How's, you know, Elevator Repair? The same, you know, how Miguel piece? You know, like, they'll go check on the people that they fund, and then, you know, but the, the odds of getting picked up are pretty, pretty, pretty low. Um, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, so purchasing power EU. Um, it's an uncomfortable truth that, uh, that people will talk about in the bar late at night, but at, at APAP, but not often in public, which is that Europe pays both ways. Um, they pay to send their artists here, and they pay to take us over there, because <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't pay for it. Um, so that's why a handful of the largest, wealthiest countries exert the most influence over the American work which tours to Europe and the European work that gets shown here. Um, and this actually has like really significant impact like from a cultural diplomacy level because the wealthier Western European countries are going to determine what work shows up on our shores. So, and it also determines who in their poor brethren they support. So when you look at a season like, like you know, I don't want to, you know, uh, a Serbian, like a, I don't know, just, it's just interesting to see uh, which countries support which less advantaged countries and, and who shows up here and who gets framed and who doesn't get framed. So Zagreb might get treated very differently than um, somewhere else. So, um, but once again, the economic crash is huge. Like the Netherlands is cutting their funding, France is in facing trouble, but they're still spending a lot of money. Um, what this actually has to do is like um, the thing that I want to say is that um, uh, this makes it all the more important that we have an actual discussion about economic funding in the EU and here. And I know we've talked about this a lot, which is like right now, for instance, the UK is telling everyone to look at the American model of funding. They're like, we should really go to the American model. And the American model that they're being sold is the Michael Kaiser model, which is a very top-down, heavy model. So, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I think it's really, I don't know the answer to this, you know, it's something we'll have to figure out, but, um, but it's really important that we discuss it. Um, and um, so uh, the reason I want to talk about uh, is that we don't spend any money on culture here, um, which is a problem. Um, and it's also a problem because the economic imbalance between Europe and the United States has real consequences in the market. Um, and Jeremy, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, which is that work of ambition and scope almost always requires foreign investment to be realized. Um, so one of the things is that when American presenters co-commission here, they get a certain amount of ownership with the work. When they co-commission with Europe, they may get less ownership technically because they're not putting in as much money. Um, but since the premiere is abroad, it doesn't have as much impact domestically on their sense of ownership of the product. Um, and I think there's a certain coolness prestige factor for American presenters to co-commission with Europeans. Um, and the economic affects the programming decision as well, right? So there's many festivals in America um, and venues in America that have included work from foreign countries that they weren't necessarily super jazzed about, but it was totally paid for by the cultural agency of the foreign country. Um, and they may or may not 
program an American show because the foreign show makes more sense budget-wise. And I was talking to the producer of a American company who had a sort of tentative gig with a domestic engagement and they uh, had put in some money in the early phase development, but when it came time to do the actual presentation, they, they, they had a show from a European country that paid for everything. So with the European country, they would actually make money because all they had to do was sell the tickets and take the box office revenue. With the American company, they had to pay everything. So an American company, and I'm not like trying to be like a gringo Republican, I'm just saying like, you know, um, there's, there, economics has real implications in the cultural discourse that we have and the aesthetic decisions that are made. Um, and I want to go back to that because um, if we think about New York as a global city, um, and if er American artists are making work, um, if increased funding comes into the system from European presenters, um, they're more likely to get funded and supported. So if American artists aren't already making work that appeals to Europe and they know the only way they're going to make money is touring Europe, then I think um, those ambitions will incentivize them to skew their aesthetics. Um, and I think it, it creates a real problem in developing an authentic American aesthetic. Um, because many of the artists, American artists that prosper either offer cultural critique that affirms European bias, they perform Americanness in a way that reinforces European stereotypes of Americans, or they create work almost entirely predicated on uh, European aesthetic concerns. Um, and it also means a lot of instability. I'm sure we can all look at the choreographic landscape in New York and we can look at who has been in and out of favor in France over the years and how that affects their livelihood. I'm not gonna, you know, it's like, oh, for a while this choreographer, everyone in France loves him, so he's doing great. And then all of a sudden France says, oh, we're not so into you anymore. And, he, and his gigs dry up and he can't support his company here. And then the next flavor of the month goes and gets support and then the next. And so if our entire New York dance and performance ecosystem is pending the support of other countries, it's a problem. Um, and, it's, and, and this European bias, just so you know, like, I, like this also has global implications, and this is too big for this, but like the French are really into Africa right now. Um, and they started off in French-speaking Africa, and, and, and um, I have heard curators go, oh, but now they're getting into English-speaking Africa. So it's like, it's kind of weird that like, we're in America, so we don't have these sort of colonial, post-colonial conversations in the same way. But I haven't fully thought that out yet, but like, I just, I want to throw that out there that like, like the role that culture plays in economics and cultural policy, whether it's, you know, hard power or soft power or just discourse or uh, encounters with difference, it's, it's pretty complicated and important. So we come back to relationships, right, which is really the basis of any market. Because all business is about trust. And that trust is built through relationships, right? Between artists, presenters, arts managers, festivals, institutions, curators, producers. And this vast and complicated social network descends on New York City in January for five days or so of meetings and seminars and drinking and hooking up and occasionally seeing shows. Um, but there's no reason to believe that a cluttered festival of full-length works, sometimes works in progress, is actually the most strategic and effective way to maximize bookings and revenue for artists. In fact, I would suggest that this vast, overstuffed market of often half-developed and underproduced work is one of the least efficient market mechanisms to generate real value for artists. 
All the time, money and effort that goes into producing a showcase festival during APAP could just as easily be done at a more welcoming time of year. For example, immediately before or after Fuseback, Fusebox or TBA or Fringe Arts. Something that would incentivize this small group of buyers to see work here in a less frenzied atmosphere and increase the likelihood of their undivided attention. For that matter, why do a public festival at all? The money could be spent as travel subsidy to bring your most valued buyers to a small private showcase weekend or to attend specific performances throughout the year that are more likely to sell. And a controlled environment would be more conducive to lower stakes artist conversations, workshop showings, and studio visits for building artist-presenter relationships over the long haul. Um, and anyone who knows who's ever tried to meet a presenter during APAP knows it's really stressful and really horrible. Whereas if you, they come during like April or whatever and you're just having coffee, it's way easier. And I would also suggest, um, for those of you who are interested in touring and, or those of you who know artists, that talk to other artists and get their experience. Because, um, you know, I was talking to like uh, a couple different people about this. And, you know, we're, most of it's through relationships. I had a show at the Chocolate Factory and Brian called somebody. I had a show here and they called somebody. Like, that's actually how it happens. Um, like 90 five percent of the time. So I want to talk really quickly um, about festivals versus markets because I think this is an important distinction. Um, at the beginning I talked about APAM and PAMs. These are performing arts markets. Um, so many festivals like um, Nordazone is, if you ever get a chance to go to Hörningen in Holland, the Nordazone festival is awesome. Um, uh, you know Melbourne festival I've never been. <laughs> Bring me. Uh, TBA, Fusebox, Fringe Arts. These are all, I didn't put River to River up there, but River to River. They're all um, civic enterprises, uh, mostly. They are presented and produced to the public almost as a community amenity. It's like a creative placemaking kind of thing. You know, they're the, so you have civic minded sponsors and a wide array of funding, wide array of funding stakeholders that are putting this festival together to sort of function as a way to focus the attention of the city, to create awareness among the citizens of themselves as a civic body, and to provide enjoyable, hopefully meaningful and transformative artistic experiences to the public. Major arts festivals are very literally performing the public. Insofar as they are international, it is often to build the prestige of the city, to bring new voices into the art city's artistic and cultural conversations, to encourage economic relationships leading to growth, and to stimulate tourism. The art market function of the festival is secondary and mostly invisible layer to the audience. And the programming decisions made by artistic directors, mostly working at not-for-profit festivals produced and presented for the public good, generally balance the mandate to serve their audience with the peer pressure to do something cool and make a statement to their programmer colleagues. Um, so, for instance, you know, the APAM and, and PAMs are just, or, or for instance, the Australian performing arts market is a distinct and totally separate entity than Melbourne or the Sydney Festival. The problem is that like New York City's January, you know, Jan Pam NYC comprised of the APAP conference and the constellation of smaller so-called festivals that have grown up around it um, blurs the line in ways that are ultimately really, I think, harmful to artists in the end of the end of the day. And this is one of the reasons why I singled out American Realness back in January. Because it contextualizes itself as a festival alongside Under the Radar and Coil, when it is actually more appropriately contextualized in an artist showcase, like those presented by other management companies, such as Gotham Arts Exchange, LC Management, or Pentacle. Um, and um, 
you know, it's just it's something that you know, it's just something to be examined. Like, like what is the what is the function of a festival? Is it is it, is it is it a market or is it a festival? And how does that impact the decisions? And ultimately, how does that make the decisions that an artist make when they participate? You know, Coil Under the Radar, all these places pay their artists. They're not working for a split of the box, and they're not and, and they're hoping for future gigs, but it's not their income is not dependent on future gigs, right? Um, so, um, also, I, I, I talked about American Realness in January very specifically because of the problem of downtown in 2014. And that is because uh, Jan Pam NYC is one of the biggest global arts markets in one of the most influential cities in the world. It is a competitive market, and the stakes are high. It is disingenuous at best and irresponsible at worst to produce a showcase that implicitly sort of like suggests the participant, uh, you know, gets the artists to, um, think there's going to be financial success or career advancement. Um, and that is produced um, under the economic and cultural assumptions of a New York that hasn't existed for 20 years. And um, so I want to talk about, really quickly, I want to explain, because it sounds like in disjointed pieces, it sounds pretty intense. But I want to try and sort of contextualize a little bit, really quickly. I made this little timeline, right? So in NEA, uh, sorry, in 1965, the NEA was established. And in 1969, you had the Association of College and University Concert Managers, which is the predecessor to APAP. And you have this period, um, you know, of pretty, pretty good funding in the arts and a pretty, like, substantial um, investment in culture. And you also have this sort of period in America where the, the idea of the public good is actually taken seriously. And, um, and one of the things that we talk about in the Brooklyn Commune report is the NEA sort of drastically changed. All of these community grassroots arts organizations, all these arts organizations of color, all these places that, that were not getting funded by the white shoe funders, all of a sudden were able to. And the NEA was reaching out and they were actually, you know, there was a time when the NEA actually sent, like had people in different parts of the country. Like they, you'd have a regional NEA, you know, consulate or whatever like so so there was a time right and then 1980 comes and Reagan gets elected and um, David Stockman the budget director comes in and says yeah I don't think we need to fund the NEA and that's when uh, that's the shot across the bow and that's when we the culture wars actually start in earnest we have 85 the NPN founded 87 the PS 122 field trips 88 Association of Performing Arts presenters right so we've got actually from 1969 to 1988 we have this professionalization right um, and then we have the culture wars of 1990. NEA funding goes away. Uh, the, uh, 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 the foundations step in to try and fill the gap. We have the NDP founded to try and fill the gap uh, and try and solve some of the touring problem. Um, and, uh, and, and continued sort of like, you know, it, it's, it's a transitional period. So we really are looking in long arcs here, right? And then we have the um, 2001, we have the economic crash then and we have 9-11 and everything kind of goes to hell. Then we have 2004, the economic recovery. Here in New York, um, we have this transition, right? We have Bloomberg. He spent his first year doing first term doing triage from 9-11. Now he can really start in his agenda for sort of a global, transforming it into a global city. And you know we covered that last week. Um, and then we have the uh, crash again in 2008. And, and, and today, but what we're seeing, but, but what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to demonstrate is that, that this is a really long arc of transformation. And that, you know, 
so the associate so this is a grassroots organization right the woman who ran the association of college and university concert managers didn't get paid for like the first 10 years or something it said on their website you know and then it gets it, and then it gets professionalized and established right like uh, you know back in 1980 you know, um, when um, in the 70s, when PS122 and on the boards and all these places were started, they were grassroots, artist-driven organizations. They were really dependent on NEA funding. If you talk to the founders of these organizations, because you could apply for multiple grants, you could apply for operating support, you could apply for artist support, you could blah, blah, blah. so you had these grassroots artist organizations coming to f flourish in the 70s, and then the economy gets difficult, and then they start to professionalize, right? So here we're at this point now, right, where we're it's a global moment. That's why I'm trying not to be judging anybody because I think what we're experiencing now this is a cyclical. Things start at the grassroots, they start at the edges, they, they formalize, they professionalize, then they become inaccessible. <laughs> um, and then someone else starts, right? And comes in and comes in and comes in. And I think that's where we are now. So I want to talk just really briefly if you're going to be living and making work in New York. I think this is kind of like the market today. This is sort of the, the, the market um, I, I aligned it a little bit because like I feel like dance space is lined up pretty well with MoMA. They've developed a strong relationship there. Um, the Kitchen has a pretty good relationship with the Whitney. Um, they also, I think, have a relationship with the New Museum because Tim, who's the head of the Kitchen, his wife runs the some program at New Museum, so there's, I'm sure there's something there. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, BAM is sort of an outlier. Um, Barishnikov is sort of an outlier. P.S. I think uh, Travis used to work with me at P.S. before he went to the New Museum. Um, uh, so I think there's some connection there. Um, and they have a sort of traditional sort of downtown outlook. Um, uh, I, I think this is still yet to be seen, what, what's going to happen with New York Live Arts. Uh, Carla was kind of the artist advocate in-house there. Um, uh, it's, it's yet to be seen what Bill T. Uh, Jones' ambitions are. Um, one imagines that it's more aligned with 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 a uh, BAM than with a uh, downtown, but you know we'll see. Um, and then, um, really, really briefly, um, uh, I want to go back to this because um, the regional theater has also experienced a lot of turmoil in the past, you know, ten years, <laughs> and. Um, as this sort of younger generation that the, of, of, of collaborative theater makers is rising up and as artistic staff and leadership in the re regional theaters and the rep theaters is shifting to a younger generation, we're seeing them starting to incorporate, you know, they've, they've discovered ensemble theater. Um, so, uh, so we have this interesting shift in the ecology yeah, of Jack, Bushwick Star, Soho Rep here, and the public, now that Mayin is running their devised theater initiative. You have these, these people that are, so this touring model that used to exist, that, that, that was developed for dance and, and performance coming out of these arts grassroots organizations, is something that the, that the NTP, the National Theater Project, is sort of adapting for theater as you know, the regionals are sort of starting to look at their um, traditional production models and, and revise that. Because um, the, if there's any actors in the house, it just bears repeating that um, the, all the regionals are, are under the organization, something called the League of Regional Theaters, and there's 74 member theaters located in every major market in the U.S., including 29 states and the District of Columbia, and they collectively issue more equity contracts to actors than Broadway and commercial tours combined. They were formed in order to be able to collectively bargain 
with Actors' Equity, the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and the United Scenic Artists, because they wanted to be able to counterbalance the demands of labor. Um, so just to think, there's 74 of them. Let's say you did 10 shows a year. Let's say there's 10 actors per thing. There's 7,400. So there are 10,000 equity actor jobs a year. A lot more uh, uh, actors than that. Um, so um, some of you who've been here before have seen this picture. Um, I'll come back to why I'm showing that in a second. So artists, by you know, fact that they're artists tend to resist the very notion of the market. <laughs> um, and that's understandable. Um, but the market framework actually can be a really useful tool for artists when making decisions and stru structuring their life work balance. Because you'll notice that what we have described thus far um, is a closed system of capital and resource allocation. The capital comes from funders and governments and is given to nonprofit organizations that make the decisions about how to allocate that capital to artists. Um, this elides the fact that a, there is a lot of capital out in the world and a lot of it is not in the not-for-profit system and it doesn't come from funders or the government and it's not controlled by arts organizations. Um, this closed system uh, also neglects the most important market of all, the audience. And in fact, this system positions the arts organization as an intermediary, not only between the artist and the funder, but also between the artist and the audience. Um, and, and, and audience is a troubling term in and of itself, but um, for another day. But so artists seek gigs at established organizations because they want to achieve greater visibility and widen their audience. But what goes unsaid is that many arts organizations seek to program artists with existing audiences because they have to fill seats. <laughs> so they program those artists and they sell tickets to their audiences. And often, I've heard it more than once, that they won't necessarily share the ticket buyer information with the artists that they have programmed. So you're, yay, I get my gig, I'm gonna do my show, blah, 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 blah. They're gonna sell tickets, blah, blah, blah. Well, can I know who came to my show? No, sorry, we're not gonna give you that. Um, so the artist is the lure that draws the audience into the building or into the institution where the institution then leverages its administrative infrastructure to cultivate that audience member into a donor, right? You bring the audience in, the institution sells them the ticket and then gets the value out of them. Um, and I, I mean, that sounds crass, I know. Um, and then, of course, the institutions ask the, the artist to volunteer at the gala. <laughs> to serve dinner to the audience members that they attracted to the organizations in the first place. So um, this is an inefficient market that mostly works against the interests of the individual artist or the independent company in the long run. Um, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying the not-for-profit system is bad. I'm, I'm saying it's broken. And what I've said before is that my experience has been that individual actors in the system are almost uniformly benevolent and goodwilled and trying to do the best they can. And the problem is that the system is so distorted that it makes it very hard to achieve positive outcomes. And so many people are working so hard, and, um, uh, but, but it's, it's an inefficient system. And it tends to work against the, the artists. Um, so the question I think that artists should be asking themselves is, why are they participating in it, if uh, at all? And if they can't change it, how can they participate in it with a greater agency and autonomy? How can they reframe their participation in the system from supplicant to partner and from peon to peer? And um, I put this up here because 
I think it's really important to think in networks. I think it's really important to think about how systems operate. And as you make your work, like whether it's you making your work or whether it's bringing someone else in the equation, like like how do you think of it as a whole system? You know, um, you have the like you're the one that has something to say. You're the one that's going to bring people to you to build that audience of people and build it together. And um, you don't actually need an institution to do that. Um, institutions are great. They allow you to scale. It's very important. But the question is like, how do we how do we how do we delink? our sense of our own cultural legitimacy and success from our uh, support from an institutional structure. Um, and I personally think um, this is a, I couldn't find the image online so I took a picture of a t-shirt uh, that I got at Fusebox. And it says, Artists of the World Unite. And, and it's Captain Kirk. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, I, and I really think that the answer is pure power. I think it's going to be about um, artists helping other artists to uh, achieve their goals and to share knowledge and share resources and share information and, and share networks and uh, radical sharing. And um, I didn't bring this slide today, but uh, 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 systemic change uh, requires uh, behavioral change and behavioral change stems from cognitive change. So, so what can we do as individuals in the system, to change the way we think about our participation in the system, change the way we think about uh, the way we engage with each other, and how do we um, use that to sort of let change ripple out through the system. Um, so um, that's it for today. Uh, thank you very much, and um, I'll see you in uh, two weeks to talk about museums and exhibitions. Thank you.